0: Enter now the Age of Apocalypse, sugar, with your hosts, Dace Free and Scott Free. Xavier is dead. Apocalypse reigns. This is the Age of Apocalypse. Scott, guess who we have back in the podcast?
1: Well, me, but uh... who, who do we have back?
2: We have Leah Williams. Leah Williams, how are you doing? Hi, I'm great. How are you guys?
0: Oh, we're so good. We're we yeah. so excited today to talk to you about the Age of Apocalypse, which, you know, they, they, they introduce some new looks and, and some new history for the characters. It's just uh, you were the first person we thought about when we saw this issue. So thank you for making the time for coming back.
2: Yeah. Oh, of course, of course. Thank you so much for, for having me. You guys are a blast to chat with.
1: <laughs> well, well, Leah, we, we, hope, we hope you're ready to talk about some shoulder pads, big hair,
0: full 90s.
1: Totally.
2: Um, yeah. Iconic costumes.
0: Iconic costumes. But Leah, the first question we want to ask you is, what do you think makes the Age of Apocalypse so special?
2: I think that there was nothing else... Like it, I, I think that it it was very very new and exciting and kind of holds space um, the way that Inferno did as an X Men event, where um, all of these stories are coming together and telling something so grand and exciting and new and different. to <laughs> X Men but um, it it was also an opportunity for me because I was coming into it knowing his art style, being super familiar with it and being able to write to his style um, is was such a joy.
0: Leah Williams, we, we love you so much. We want you on the podcast again in the future, but um, the Blink book was initially on our list of, of books we wanted to tackle. And ultimately we took it off of our reading list.
2: <laughs> I but mean- now- Fair, fair. I, I'm sorry for making you guys do the extra work now. Putting it back on. Um, but...
0: well, listen, if Leah Williams comes on this podcast and says that the Blink miniseries was one of her favorite AOA titles, that back is going on the, on, on the reading list. It's yeah. back on the list. It's back right on now. the list. I had a problem just placing it. That was that that yeah. was that was my quarrel with it. But well, you know, I mean,
2: and- do you mean within the timeline or?
0: Yeah, like the reading guide. I think Marvel officially puts it towards the beginning because some parts of it take place in a prequel. But then, like the ending, which I'm I'm forgetting how the ending is. It, it kind of ends with her going into exiles. So I felt like yeah. it was just too open ended for something else. You know, and what it I mean? also
2: came out like significantly later than yeah. the AI yes, event. yes, like, you're absolutely right. Years afterwards, too. A years so I'm later. kind of cheating by. Um, Referencing it, but in my defense, for me it was super memorable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it's blink. I mean, she is she's incredible.
2: And strange and different given the context of, of when it's happening. Like this is not a a healthy kind of loving relationship that we're looking at here. We're looking at trauma bond in the midst of age of apocalypse, and it's it's not comfortable. Um, especially if you're coming into it, having known these characters and knowing their, their backgrounds and the age gap and like all of this kind of stuff. Um, it doesn't feel great, but what it does is add to the overall sense of, you know, foreboding, uh, and, and doom and gloom that we've got going on, um, kind of raises the stakes in that regard. Nothing is as it should be coming at it is okay. No love, no love whatsoever, because to him, that's a comforting thought, um, given everything that he's gone through. And of course, there are really severe consequences to removing all romance, all familial love, all platonic love, all queerness by default. Um, it's, it's got huge, huge implications and consequences. So um, the book that I was asked to write, uh, when I was approached about it, it was like, hey, do you want to write the Gestapo book of this? <laughs> and <laughs> and in my head, I felt like the monkey's paw finger curl, like, okay, but I'm going to make it super fucking queer <laughs> because how dare you ask a queer writer to do this? Um, so yeah, that was why it was traumatizing to write, but also there is literally no other approach that I would have wanted to take with it um, because the the kind of storytelling real estate that I wanted to stake out with it uh, is, is not to, you know, just head on be the enforcer book, be the bad guys in everybody else's book. I wanted to do something nuanced. I wanted to do something that really explored the consequences of queer erasure in, in like a tangible, authentic way. And, um, you know, we've got Jubilee on the cast, too, who her memories of Shogo, her son, were erased also. So she has empty nest syndrome without knowing she has empty nest syndrome, and she is grieving the loss of her child without knowing that that is what she's feeling. So, of course, once she kind of remembers everything in in the end, she's the first one to uh, get her memories back, I think. Well, actually, I can't remember. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Same. But, I, I can't remember either. But it, yeah, I it was just like, like
2: dominoes falling in the yeah. end. But basically, the extremists, which is the name of this team, um, that in Nate Gray's Utopia, they were charged with kind of, uh, you know, taking in people who violated the the romance rules. Um, the in the end, it ended up being the extremists who destroyed Nate Gray's Utopia because out of the entire line, they were the ones who kind of woke up first and realized what was going on. Uh, specifically Northstar, Iceman, Jubilee, and Richter, um, who in in this world di- could not remember Shatterstar, but uh, was running a movie theater because it made him feel comforted. And that, you know, of course, is because a small part of his subconscious Related movies to Shatterstar.
1: Well, like the the next character who appears in The Chosen is um very unfortunate like dress choices, uh Cyclops in the Age of Apocalypse. Uh he's got the hair and the, the eye and everything. Like um like what would your approach be to writing like a really sort of like straight character like Cyclops in Uh, sort of over-the-top setting like The Age of Apocalypse.
2: Honestly, I think that the choices they made with that were were great for his character. Like, the long hair, the stubble, it it is completely uh, opposite of what, you know, our Scott Summers, the way we know and love him, would have chosen to present himself. This version is way messier, way more unkempt, and... uh, probably like you know regular scott would break out into hives at the thought of (laughs) letting people see him that way um and
0: at the thought of having to condition his hair every night
2: (laughs) oh it's not beautiful though it's like fully no it's not
0: conditioned (laughs) like
2: in his face cover emo style covers um half his face most of the time and uh just wild he looks like a jungle man
0: I mean, I do love that look for him. But the next character is his little brother, Havoc, who is such a big reaction to Cyclops in Age of Apocalypse. Do you think it's ever possible to like separate that relationship for Havoc? I think with Hellions, you know, with Zeb Wells Hellions, it has been. But I'm curious from your perspective.
2: Do you mean separate it from Scott in general or in Apocalypse specifically?
0: Well, I think in general, because I do feel some of the larger Havoc stories deal with him being, you know, Cyclops' little brother.
2: I, I think that, you know, there's no way to uh, kind of permanently uh, separate them without <laughs> some sort of retcon. But uh, I also like the fact that being in scott's shadow is something that affects alex all the time um it is it is a part of his identity and a part of his story and it kind of adds to uh, his inferiority complex and uh, ambition to be more than just scott's little brother and yeah i totally agree zeb did a fantastic job um getting me to fall in love with havoc for the first time in hellions um i i I teased Zeb uh, before I I had ever read an issue of his Hellions or read his scripts, rather, first. Um, I teased Zeb about how much I hated Havoc (laughs) And, and kind of the uphill battle that he had to make me love Havoc again. And then he did it in less than one issue, like A few pages of of uh his first hellion script and i was like god damn it zeb well (laughs) now i gotta make room in my heart for this new character well because someone like
0: havoc like i even think of like uncanny avengers where one could argue he took on more of a leadership role with the avengers and and leading that 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 team but you know the opening page is him being angry at cyclops and you know, even when the time display Cyclops comes in, you know, there's, there's that drama there between them. But I think Zeb, what he did really well, and I can't believe we're talking about Hellions in Past Tense because that's such a great book and, and he's so wonderful. But he was t- saying to us that that he, the, his characters are traumatized characters and, and they're dealing with their trauma. And Alex has a lot of that. And, and I, what you said, like, yeah, I fell in love with Alex issue one of Hellions. Wait, here's a fun follow-up question though. Since you wrote Polaris in X Factor and in Hellion's Havoc is like heartbroken over Madeline. What what do you think Polaris thinks of that situation?
2: Um, I I think that it's probably a relief to her, honestly. <laughs> so um Zeb and I were were like collaborating on how to distance Polaris and Havoc the entire time. Like there are so many moments in uh, both X-Factor and Hellions where we're pushing them further and further apart so that they can kind of reach this uh, equilibrium as friends on equal footing uh, by the time of the Hellfire Gala, which is also something that Zeb and I collaborated on. And the reason that we did that is because, you know, both of us, He wanted to give uh, Alex more agency. I wanted to give Lorna more agency. And um, the, the Alex and Lorna ship, I understand that it has a ton of fans, but to me, That's a toxic relationship. And and they were very codependent and they never were able to self-actualize on their own terms as individual while in that relationship. So it's a very good thing for them not to be together anymore. And and if I'm going to like explain my view of that ship a bit more, to me, they're like that straight couple at a party who gets drunk at like a house party who gets drunk and fights really loudly in front of everyone at the beginning of the party. And then by the end of the party are, you know, wasted making out on the couch again, like they've made up, like it's not healthy and it's a spectacle. And, um, I, I'm very glad <laughs> that they're not together now and are able to kind of figure themselves out and, and, uh, be friends rather than kind of, keep circling the same ruts of, of a toxic relationship.
0: You
1: can't talk about, like, the Summers Brothers and Summers, particularly in the 90s, without dealing with, like, Sinister. And for, like, us in this, like, the Krakoa era, like, Sinister going from being, like, creepy geneticist to, well, still a creepy geneticist, but, like, the sort of camp.
2: I was going to say a creepy figure. campy geneticist. <laughs> Cre-
1: but but like it, it it's like how do you feel about like the change in like sinister where he's almost become like the sort of like campy well-liked by like fans figure when it's still like sinister
2: i love it honestly i think it makes him that much more distinctive and memorable um i was it karen gillen who was the first to like really give sinister his his kind of campy uh voice like it's it's so it registers as so authentic and natural to me, given this character's personality and his narcissism and how over the top he is. Like, Kieran really kind of brought it all together under one umbrella and one unifying, cohesive voice that is a lot more approachable for new writers to tackle because it is so distinctive and memorable that he is his own character now. And he has his own kind of, mores and lexicon um that's instantly recognizable the same way that like wolverine you know has has his own distinctive personality and way of talking um so i love it and i also think that uh the fact that he's so beloved by fans now even still being a villain Like it's, it's going to be a lot of fun when the other shoe drops and, you know, he's never stopped being a villain. He's never stopped looking out for himself. So someday, obviously that's going to be a lot of fun to play with.
0: The next character in these data pages is Storm. And I'm curious, what what do you think makes Storm such a great character in general?
2: God, that's a huge question. I know. I'm so um, sorry,
0: Leah, Leah Williams. We have to ask you all the tough questions here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> How dare you make me think about this? No. Um, she's just magnificent. First of all, she's the only X-Man who's never died.
0: Yes. Oh, my God. And then in Giant Size X-Men, she says, I, it, I know I can be resurrected, but I, this is my life. I want to fight for it. It was so beautiful that, the way that was handled, her perspective. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so she occupies this completely unique territory as an X-Men character. And, and you know, for decades, the most prominent and only uh, Black X-Men. Um, and, you know, a Black woman who was just owning her own space and storytelling in the comics. Um, it's, it's incredible. Um, and she is OP as hell. She (laughs) is by far one of the most overpowered X-Men, just kind of a nearly infinite range of her abilities. Um, It's, and I also think that uh, she, okay, here's a hot take. She um, was the only X-woman, To have a fully developed personality up until um hell i'd i'd say i'd say the 80s i'd say that um aurora was fleshed out before gene before lorna before anybody else um no that's a
0: very fair con we've been we we have um some friends who are reading the the issues the early issues of x-men from the beginning and Jean is surprisingly very much just a stereotypical girl on the team. She's the
2: girl. She's the girl. It, and yeah. there are so many characters or so many like female characters who are introduced with, um, what are they called? A, oh, uh, a pose and point power where... Mm-hmm the very like passive ability, uh, because it's mostly psychic and what they do is, you know, touch their temple and like pose in a really feminine and sexy way, um, in order to use their powers. And then comes Aurora, who's like a world breaker mutant and incredibly powerful. And it's physical, it's active. Um, she's, she's able to interact with her environment in, in so many different ways that, you know, we had never seen a, a female character do this kind of thing before Aurora. Well,
1: we'll, we'll, we'll pivot from uh, a really hard question to an equally uh, hard one. Uh, the next character is Quicksilver. And, um, like, you're obviously with Trial of Magneto or writing Quicksilver. And, like, what what are your thoughts on, like, Pietro in general?
2: <sighs> Did you hear <know> my sigh? <laughs> 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 He's he's a complicated one and I think that he's both underrated and misunderstood at the same time. Um, he is a character who, like North Star, has always been kind of tasked for caring for his ailing sister um, or unwell sister, I should say. and it has really taken its toll on him and he's also kind of brash and can be, Rude and impatient, which are traits associated with a lot of speedsters. Um, but with Quicksilver, you know, unlike Northstar, they both have completely distinctive personalities. Like Northstar is um, very clear in what he wants and how he feels and what his position on you know circumstances are, like his his morals, his values, that kind of thing. He knows. He knows but Quicksilver Quicksilver is very much still figuring out this part of himself. He's a little lost and he's always been a little lost. He's never had the kind of like found family that, um, you know, even Wanda had with the Avengers. It's never been quite the same. Great point. Um, He's, he's always been kind of an Island and it's, it makes me really sad.
0: <laughs> the next um, character is a dark beast. And so Leah Williams, we want to ask you true or false dark beast is the best version of Hank McCoy. True. <laughs> yes! <laughs> yes. Right there. That's what we love to hear. Mm.
2: I mean, it's fascinating and I feel like it, you know, we're talking about, uh, in, in comparison of Dark Beast between contemporary beast and what's going on in the current comics, which is taking a pretty dark turn, like it, there's mm-hmm. something very exciting about it and something that feels natural. And Dark Beast in particular is just thrilling because it's, it's taking what Hank has always feared about himself being monstrous and owning it, just totally owning it and leaning into it and it's, it's so compelling
0: So like
1: before you mentioned like the four horsemen and like who who would if you were able to choose like who would you pick as your like four horsemen?
2: Oh that's a good question. Well honestly uh, in in terms of what I already chose to do in uh, extremist when we broke, Nate Gray's utopia, my four horsemen were North Star, Iceman, Jubilee, and Richter. And I I got to add this line of dialogue where once they were already kind of in the midst of destroying uh, this this false utopia, this like microcosm they'd been trapped in, uh, Richter says something like who's ready for the big gay apocalypse round two. And it was just so much fun to have like three queer characters in particular destroying <laughs> this place that hurt them so much. So I, those are the four horsemen that I have already chosen at uh, one point in the comics. And if I had to do it again in a different capacity, I would choose... I mean, I would still choose Northstar because he's a world ender, um, and and Jubilee because she's also a world breaker mutant. Um, and then I would choose, hmm, hope, hope <gasps> summer.
0: Yes, oh, hope because Summers is a good would one.
2: Be incredible at it, <laughs> baby Spaldy. And... <laughs> <laughs> um. And Magneto, because I've fallen in love with him during Trial of Magneto.
0: So the next entry is of Mystique and Destiny. And obviously, Destiny plays a big role in Age of Apocalypse. But um, back in the main 616 universe, I mean, their relationship, the the focal point of Inferno. And I'm curious about your your thoughts on the evolution of how their relationship has been portrayed. Because here in Age of Apocalypse, you know, sort of like the the literature leading up to it, um, she's being, she's referred to as a friend, you know, my, my, you killed my dear friend is what Raven says, but Hickman flat out has Raven say, I want my wife back. So I'm curious about what you think of the evolution of how that relationship has been portrayed.
2: Um, let me pull up my mystique playlist to link to you real quick. It's going to answer your question without me having to actually say anything about it. I will take
0: a playlist. Yes.
2: I have playlists for like all the mutants. Um, and I am especially proud of this mystique one. And you'll see by the date on this, when I made it well before long before Inferno, um,
0: uh, here we go. Okay, let me see. Ooh, boom. Okay. Oh my god. First of all, I love the meme of the little girl with the burning house as mystique. <laughs> That's absolutely amazing. Born dark, yes. can help falling in love. Desire, nobody wants to be alone. Oh my God, this is such an amazing playlist. And of course, I,
2: the playlist description is um, what does it say?
0: Give Mystique her wife back,
2: parentheses <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I love the direction that Hickman has taken their relationship because you know, he clearly sees it for what it is, which is this very grand, epic romance, something faded, something for the like something storybook. Um, and I, I love the scale of it. I, I love how prominent and, and uh, unapologetic it is now.
1: On, a, on another powerful, uh, shall we say, ex-lady, um, somebody asked us, do you think that like Moira, considering her powers retained her Age of Apocalypse memories or is that just something nobody's even <laughs> considered?
2: I think that's something nobody's considered. <laughs> well, there you I, mean, go, I, <laughs> I, I personally have not considered it, but it, that doesn't mean, you know, somebody else in the ex office uh, has not. It's a really interesting question. And I think that, you know, by nature of her powers, there's a strong possibility that she has, if we're thinking about it, that would not be difficult to justify textually because she always kind of has existed in her own timeline. She's the Moira timeline.
0: Yeah, and I'm curious what happens because AOA is originally a reskinning of, of the 616 timeline. So I'm curious what, what happens to Moira and her memories and all that. The next person in, or excuse me, in the next uh, couple tackled in the, the Chosen is Jean and Wolverine. So what's, what's the general vibe with Jean, Logan, and Scott? Over in the in the X Slack, uh,
2: they're a thruple.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I love um, the thruple. I love the thruple so much. It's definitely one of those things where, like, um, in in the comics, it is meant to be ambiguous on purpose because, obviously. Not everyone reading the comics is gonna be as open-minded or accepting of this. Uh, and so it's kind of like an inkblot where they're gonna see what they wanna see. And what like straight people sometimes wanna see <laughs> is something uh, normal and recognizable and heteronormative, you know, um, but of course it is not, you know, textually limited. That's not a closed door that is not open for other types of interpretation. Um, and I of course think that they're polyamorous. I <laughs> and I also think that uh, Scott and Logan are hooking up. <laughs> that is my read on it.
0: I, I, you, yes. I, and I think certain situations are in your face, obvious about yeah. it in, right there. But I'm also, when that happened, I just want to say, Leah, that like I think readers like me and Scott were so happy to see that because it's so tired to see two dudes fighting over a girl's yeah. affection. It is such an antiquated story point it's that doesn't give, does not, it, it, it just, go away give us something new and you guys have done that so well
2: well that that is all Hickman I gotta say because he hates the shipping wars and came into it like no I'm not doing that yeah. <laughs> and he, said, he came up with this which I absolutely love the connecting bedrooms that was him yeah
0: oh
1: love it that that's a nice segue to this question which kind of touches on the shipping wars like so this next character is gambit And um, Gambit and Rogue are not a couple in the Age of Apocalypse. You know, we, we touched briefly on like Rogue and Magneto. Do you think that like Gambit and Rogue work as like separate characters or are they just one of those couples that's just like a couple?
2: Um, I think both is the answer to that. They do work as separate characters and they kind of always have been. They've entered the comics at, at separate times and separate origin stories um, and have, have kind of had their own chance to be established as unique uh, entities before, you know, coming together. And oh. even if it started as a thing of like, okay, well, here's the two rednecks. So let's just group those together or however it came about. There's something very natural about it now. Um, I, I think that their relationship is not an unhealthy one. I, I think it's one of the few healthy ones that we, we get to see. And I like that they get to evolve as people and, you know, not be necessarily limited by uh, being in a couple. They still have their own stuff going on, um, you know, Rogue and uh, Gambit. We see them in Teeny Howard and Marcus Toe's Excalibur um, kind of, coming together and then apart again as they have different adventures that take them on different paths. And that was something very intentional on on Teenie's part. She didn't want them to just be like the fuddy-duddy married couple who, you know, are only uh, a set of two. They don't get to be their yeah. own people.
0: Kelly Thompson did a lot of work with those characters as well. And when we spoke to her a couple of weeks ago, she, she said something about how she wanted more therapy for them, you know, couples therapy. And I I think that Rogan Gambit have evolved as a couple over the years. And individually, I mean, Mike Carrie's Rogue is a good example of her being on her own.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So the next character is Colossus and Colossus is pretty savage in, in age of apocalypse when he leaves his students to, to sort of be killed and i'm sorry to listeners at home you know that is kind of a spoiler but i'm curious what do you think like 616 magic would think of colossus in in age of apocalypse
2: she'd probably try to kill him Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) she would she absolutely would
2: yeah i like no hesitation um She's savage in a way that he never will be um, because he was not kidnapped and tortured in limbo for many of his formative years as a child. Um, And he doesn't have the same sort of internal conflict that magic has where she's terrified of herself first and foremost because of her capacity to unleash hell on earth her individual capacity to do that. You know, it's, it's what Velasco groomed her to be um, a key to please his eldritch gods to bring about the apocalypse and end the world. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, what makes her so fucking cool as a character is that she will not hesitate to draw upon that to kick ass. Like when it comes down to, uh, her brother and like him abandoning his students to die she's gonna she's gonna kill him she's gonna kick his ass yeah. uh, she's gonna you know bring the dark child forth and just whoop her older brother's ass from here to kingdom come
1: well like like coming towards the the end of the chosen uh, we get one of the original five uh, angel uh, Warren worthington um, and like so much of like modern angel is associated with his his archangel Persona, which he obviously gets from Apocalypse. Um, do you think Angel can like work as a character without the sort of like Angel Archangel dynamic, or or not?
2: So funny. I was just talking to um, talking to. I was just lightly arguing with my friend John about this exact thing because, um, like, we we both agree that Warren without his archangel persona is kind of boring, you know, and, and it's because, um, you know, we'll use Batman as an example. Batman's origin story starts with uh, the trauma, not his wealth. Whereas Warren's origin story starts with his wealth. It presents him as kind of a rich boy. So that's what uh, Lee needs his personality and our understanding of him as a character and it's not very interesting yeah. <laughs> it is not the greatest so um like yeah i uh totally think that the archangel persona is so much more additive <laughs> in this regard because it gives him you know like his first real distinction uh, this badass design, this lethal, uh, you know, new winged warrior and, and completely different and exceptionally memorable design. Like it's, it's just, it's fantastic. The so, flechette, like the, um, the, the projectiles that he can shoot yeah. out of his wings. Like yeah. now somebody who didn't have an offensive ability has an offensive ability.
1: Well, like our, our second to last, uh, chosen is, uh, Bishop who's probably had like one of the biggest journeys, um, just in growth and evolution of like one of the more recent X-Men characters, like post, uh, post seventies. And like, what do you think like makes Bishop an interesting character? Like, what do you think drives him as a character?
2: Well, he's a cop and, um, Nobody likes cops, but Bishop in particular is, he's very strict with himself and, you know, his kind of rules about the world as he understands it. But at the same time, we do get to watch his understanding evolve as time goes on and his understanding changes um, depending on where and when he is. And I think that's a really interesting journey, and I love the way that it kind of almost comes full circle in Marauders, where he's this, like, roguish vanguard figure who is not about, um, you know, capture and punishment and, and being a cop and that kind of thing. It's more about... Rescue and liberty, and and fighting on like a completely different side of things, and that is an amazing journey. Um, and I think, like personality-wise, his uh, his demeanor, his way of being is so distinct compared to everybody else that we encounter in the X Men. Like he's another really memorable voice, and uh, is. is is kind of dry like Scott and really strict like Scott, but he's not a wet blanket like Scott. He's not internally tortured the way Scott is. And it it just makes him such an interesting uh, character to watch interact with other personalities in the X-Men.
0: So speaking of interesting personalities, our last question uh, is for this last character, which is Xavier. And, you know, Apocalypse in this data page is using what the world would have been like had Xavier not died. So, Leah Williams, we're going to ask you, should Xavier have remained dead?
2: I mean, you know, I'm going to say yes, because
0: I. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So then our last episode. I
2: I don't like Charles. I think he's a bad guy. I think that he like pretends to be this benevolent martyred altruist when really he's super manipulative and i don't like him um i am reluctantly going to probably love him uh in some stories coming up soon because i know it's gonna do the same thing that zeb did to me with havoc and hellions where uh you know somebody riding the hell out of him is just gonna make me love him for the first time. So I'm not looking forward to that um, because then I'll have to give up this, you know, years (laughs) and years long grudge I've had against this character. Um, But yeah, I think it would be really interesting to see X-Men develop uh, without him longer, more, um, you know, we've done it before in the past, we can do it again. We don't need him to save (laughs) the world.
0: All right, guys, that is our interview with the incredible Leah Williams. We are so excited that she came back to the podcast to discuss Age of Apocalypse and give us insight on characters in the pre-Cohen age. Next up, I want to give a warm welcome to the newest member of the Power of X-Men team. You know her because we mention her on every single fucking episode of this podcast, and she has been a guest countless times on this podcast. Demanda Martini, who is going to be giving us reads on X characters going forward as we do our Age of Apocalypse reread.
3: So without further ado, here's Miss Demanda Martini. Hi, Power of X-Men podcast. It's me, your favorite cosplay queen, Demanda Martini, and I'm here to read you characters from the Age of Apocalypse. Today's character is Bishop. Bishop's look in the AOA is pretty fire with the shaved head, the rippling muscles, the brooding attitude. But he should be careful about all of that brooding, because the next time that we see him and he's brooding with a shaved head traveling through time, it didn't end very well for him. I mean, trying to murder a baby? Just irony that in this timeline he seems to be protecting babies. So which is it, Bishop? Are we here to protect the future of mutantkind? Or are we here to kill babies? Join me next time for another character on Reading Characters from the Age of Apocalypse right here on the Power of X-Men podcast. Mwah! Well, thanks, sugar. The Age of Apocalypse
0: is now over, and we'll see you next time.